G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're going to be talking about Christians engaging in political theology. Now, some people have got a problem with that. But without a doubt, Christians are increasingly discontent with the sweeping changes that have begun to dismantle what we've long taken for granted. The so-called liberal democratic order of yesteryear, shaped by our own Christian heritage, has been under attack. And Christians have felt, at times, powerless to defend righteousness and truth. Our special guest today teaches political theology and has been challenging what he calls simplistic notions of what it means to do political theology. He argues that it's time for this discipline of political theology to grow up and become a real discipline. Dr. Jonathan Cole specialises in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics, and is host of what's called the Political Animals Podcast. With honest conversations about the political, theological and cultural ideas that shape who we are in the 21st century. He is, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago with Martin Miles, preparing to address the upcoming Church and State Summit this coming Saturday, just south of Brisbane in Bow Desert. Jonathan Cole is a scholar, a writer, a translator, a commentator, a lecturer and speaker specialising in political theology and want to make a special welcome to Jonathan Cole. Jonathan, welcome along to 2020. Neil, it's a really great pleasure to be talking to you, and uh, that was a great intro. Thank you. Hey, Jonathan, let's start by talking about your podcast. It's called the Political Animals Podcast. Got a sort of an edginess to it. Uh, how long have you been doing this now, and uh, and what's the sort of things you typically talk about? Sure, the podcast began in late 2020, so it's a little over a year old. I do, on average, one episode a week and really I set out to create my own ideal podcast because I felt as an Australian the ideal podcast I would like to listen to didn't actually exist and that is a long form conversation podcast so we're talking long not quite Joe Rogan length but usually typically between an hour and a half to two hours allowing a deep dive that goes just a little deeper and is pitched a little higher than the usual fare in Australia. And the other thing I wanted to do was actually bring my Christian faith together with my interest in politics, which I didn't feel was really being done in the Australian market. And so my epi- some episodes just focus on secular questions. For example, I did one recently with a, an analyst from the Lowy Institute on the rise of Chinese military power and its strategic consequences in the Asia Pacific, in particular for the defense of Australia. Yet I've also done ones looking at the vexed issue of the transgender movement and its political ramifications. And then I have ones that are very church focused. So two coming down the pipeline, just by way of example, 
one of them with a Christian church historian looking at the Christian foundation, actually, of Australia, going back to 1788. And it is a thoroughly Christian settlement of Australia, if we look at the history. And I've also got one that I just recorded in Wagga a couple of days ago with a Catholic theologian looking at the contemporary face of Catholicism in Australia. So that's just a little sample of the kinds of issues I deal with and really a bit of an explanation between the motivation. So I figured if this podcast, this ideal podcast that I would like to listen to isn't out there, there's bound to be at least a couple of other people that would like to listen to a podcast like that. And I'm happy to say it turns out there are even more people than I thought existed that want this kind of long-form, deep-dive, Christian-slash-secular content. Well, no doubt there'll be listeners who have heard you just describe the sorts of topics you talk about, and they'll be wanting to subscribe to that podcast and have, a, as you say, a deep dive uh, into some of those critical issues. So if we're talking about this intersection between faith and politics, just picking up on the very first one you mentioned, uh, you know, the thought of China and uh, where Australia might be in Uh, the issues of the rise of China, and those sorts of things are in the news now every day. And we might say, well, what has Christian thought to do with where Australia should be positioned with the rise of China? This is the sort of thing you like to dissect and, and to bring out some of the really, really finer points in that. And, of course, then guided by a Christian foundation to your thought. This is where the idea of Christian theology comes in, because it is rubber hits the road, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. And, you know, you raise an interesting point there. And in relation to the podcast, I should just clarify that some of the content um, doesn't actually go into theology. Some of the content goes exclusively into theology. And then some of the the shows bridge the, the gap between them. So that particular show I mentioned was with someone who's not a person of of faith. And the interesting thing about the, the China question is that a lot of the strategic issues, particularly around defense capability, aren't really theological. So you take you may mention the fact that it's in the news and, and boy oh boy is it in the news. We just had that report of the laser being being shone by a Chinese ship in Australia's territorial waters against one of our aircraft, a lot of those capability questions just are of a different genre, if I can put it like that, from theology. And so the the Bible doesn't really take a position on nuclear submarines, for example. And so a lot of those questions are very technical to do with weapon systems, the kind of defense strategy we have. But, But when it comes to the international order, any Bible reading Christian is going to know that the Bible talks about a God who is involved in the international order, who has not only an interest, but has a providential role in the whole sweep of history, whether it was the special covenantal relationship God had with Israel, right through uh, to the spread of the gospel right across the world, which I would argue was the single most transformative moment in the whole of human history. And so there are huge theological questions. I haven't actually had the opportunity to go down this path, but it is on my to-do list, is to take a look at that big question of where is God when it comes to the great conflicts, the great tensions, the great strategic issues. Because that, to be honest, with that one, I really need a theologian rather than a kind of secular analyst. So that is territory I'm I'm planning to go down because, as you say, 
these are big questions and Christians aren't, in my experience, aren't really asking them and perhaps not equipped to even answer them. I imagine when it comes to any sort of issue, you've got to boil down where the issue really is so that you can apply a Christian ethic to it. So, I mean, back onto that China issue, which you say was more about weapons, uh, less about the uh, the sorts of uh, political theology of that. But you've got an atheistic, communistic uh, nation uh, versus, in some sense here, a Christian-based liberal democracy. So the values are different. So all of a sudden, because you've got those differing values, you have something to say about a political theology. Oh, indeed. Look, when it comes to the actual system of government in China, there are many, many grounds for a Christian uh, living in Australia who supports a liberal democracy as a basic system of government, a lot for them to oppose there. I mean, we, we do not want to, A, ever live under that system or see that system of one-party authoritarian rule emerge in Australia. And I would suggest further, we certainly don't want to, well, we shouldn't want to live in a, in a world, and we shouldn't be naive about what this world would look like, should uh, a country with that, or, you know, effectively an authoritarian capitalist one-party uh, state communist in name, but really the, the the key point that is troubling is the authoritarian controlling aspect. We don't want to see that country dominate the international system because it will have all kinds of repercussions. Now, when it comes to the reasons one might oppose that, there are lots of non-Christians around the world who are deeply troubled by the rise of China and its its potential consequences. The Christian who may oppose that also might oppose it for specifically theological um, reasons. Even if the opposition ends up looking the same, the, the pathway, if you like, the stream leading into the, the pool for the Christian often is, or at least I would say should be, theological. Jonathan, there is a thought, and it is in the mind, no doubt, of some listening to our conversation today, that somehow or other politics is separate from the gospel. Uh, but you say it's not instead of the gospel, it's inseparable from the gospel. How do you, how do you think of uh, realigning a way that Christians can not do away with where they see the central core value of the gospel being taken to the whole world and uh, God's proclamation of that gospel and salvation, which is very important for every Christian, but, uh, but this thought that somehow or other along with that, uh, as an inseparable part of that, the gospel has to do with uh, all of human uh, flourishing and how that can happen. Any thoughts here? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question, Neil, I have to say. Look, I'd, I'd make a couple of uh, observations because it, it's quite a complex question once you start to look into it. The, the first rule of thumb, I would say, and this this, is, this might sound, <laughs> might strike some listeners as a funny mantra to have as a political theo- theologian, but the thing I always start from and remind myself is that there is no salvation in, in politics. And there's actually a good biblical basis for this. You mentioned the church-state summit, and I'm honored to be one of the, the speakers there, and I'm going to be looking at some of the really important, what I would describe as political passages in the Bible. And one of them is that I'll be looking at is Psalm 146 verses 3 to 4. And that is, I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head the exact 
phrasing, but it's something like don't place your trust in princes because um, you cannot find your salvation in them. The point is that the Bible tells us very clearly where our salvation is. That is in the atoning sacrifice, the death, resurrection, resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, who is our Lord. One of the other verses I'll be looking at is Philippians 3.20 that talks about our citizenship being in heaven. So the Christian, as a kind of first principle, whenever they look at politics, needs to be very clear that salvation, so the heart of the gospel, really isn't so much to do with politics. That is, you could be saved in any system, from North Korea even to the China we talked about, even to a highly secularized society in the West, provided you put your faith and trust in the risen Lord and repent and start to follow Jesus in terms of the way you live. Now that said, on the other hand, there is a what I would call a naive tendency amongst certain sections of Christianity to think, okay, that's great. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I agree there's no salvation in politics. Therefore, we should be disinterested in politics. I think that is not only naive, but very dangerous because what does it mean to be saved? We're talking about the kind of transformation of your personal life. We're talking about communities of faith that live in the public life. This is all by way of saying that the process of, say, evangelization, of being a church doesn't happen in a political vacuum. All humans are political animals in the sense that we live in some political context and circumstance. And as we're seeing, and you, you highlighted this excellently in your introduction, those of us living in Australia who are practicing Christians or Christians of conviction, if I can put it like that, are living in a cultural context, a political context now, that is not benign or increasingly less benign and becoming more actively hostile as we face a new group, small admittedly, of what I call anti-religious activists, and usually their target is Christianity more so than Islam and Judaism or any other religion, and a larger pool of people now under a certain age, say people of my generation, Gen X and below, who are quite literally completely ignorant of who Jesus is, what Christians believe, what goes on in the church, because they've never set foot in it. And so they are that large group of the ignorant is quite susceptible to the small group of really active, what I call anti-religious activists, who are trying to convince that ignorant majority that Christianity is harmful, it's bigoted, it's an obstacle to progress. So you take a country like Australia, and I go back to my original point when I said there's no salvation in politics. And so if we are interested in people's salvation, as we should be, in accordance with the Great Commission that you mentioned from the end of Matthew's Gospel, then we should be trying to spread the good news to an Australian now that is completely ignorant of it or thinks erroneously and shockingly that it's bad news. However, we can't do that and not actually work for the place of Christianity and the freedom <laughs> to actually live out the gospel in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile, that means we have to be engaged in the political because you can't actually fulfill the gospel commission function uh, while ignoring the politics, lest you find yourself in a situation downstream where you're not actually free to even preach the gospel. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. 
Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316 for questions, comments, even a critique for our conversation today. We're talking about that intersection between religion and politics. Our special guest is Dr. Jonathan Cole, who specialises in political theology. Jonathan, let me ask you what might be at the heart, at the essence of political theology, because my suspicion is that it has a lot to do with who's wielding the power and how they wield that power. Any thoughts here around applying God's principles to how power is being utilised by our leaders? Wow, that's another great question, Neil. Look, the first thing I would say just as a by way of preface is to just note that Power is one of those questions that in political philosophy, a lot of people in our contemporary culture, I'm not talking specifically about Christians here, find really, really troubling because it seems to cut against the grain of a a number of cultural currents about equality, liberating the individual, liberating oppressed groups, empowering and enhancing the ability for people to become and fulfill whatever they want. But the the reality is, and now I'm putting my theological cap on, I think uh, what I would I would actually call it political authority. It, it intersects with power, but let's just call it power. It doesn't matter. I think this is something that actually God has instituted for our benefit because in reality, how do humans flourish and how does a, a lot of humans manage to live together? It's through authoritarian structures. So how do we all begin life, Neil? We are born as helpless inf- infants um, patently under the absolute authority of our parents who then provide for us, care for us, rear us, train us, um, and enable us to become functioning adults who can then repeat that pattern with our own children. And for a society to flourish and function, you need some kind of order. You need law, you need authority structures. And so I regard this, contrary to the, the current secular, if I can call it conceit or consternation with power, it's a kind of ugly word. It is too for some progressive Christians, to be honest. I see this actually as a good thing that God has instituted in the creation order. And the Bible teaches this after all in Romans 13 verses 1 to 7. All authority comes from God and it has been instituted by God. And so I think we fail to see just how essential it is for there to be someone exercising power. Now, obviously, power can be abused. That's where a lot of that consternation I mentioned earlier comes in. But the fact that you have egregious abusers of power like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, just to mention uh, two from history, doesn't invalidate the vital role that authority and power play in what I would call the created order and for the flourishing of human beings. And so I don't think Christians should be scared of this idea of power. There are lots of ethical questions about the way you should use it. But I think we need to see that this is actually God has given us the means <laughs> to do what otherwise is really difficult to explain. I mean, I, Neil, you're in Brisbane, I understand, which has what a couple of million people. Have you or your listeners ever stopped to think how, how on earth is it possible for two million human beings with all of the, the diversity that comes to actually live together in a space without massacring each other and banging at each other's throats? Of course, there's dysfunction and there are problems and all that. But what I'm trying to draw people's attention to is this is actually a kind of miraculous thing that, in my view, no secular 
political philosopher or thinker has ever been able to explain. And we talked earlier about the role of God in the international system. And I think this is where I would introduce both providence. I think providence in a way is, if you like, God stopping humans from (laughs) pursuing their own sort of innate, sinful, self-destructive tendencies. But he's also given us, as bearers of his image, authority, the ability to lead, to run things, to coordinate, to organize, and also the, the humility to obey. Wonderful stuff. And not long out from news, let's squeeze in a call from a listener. Andrew is in Brisbane. Hello, Andrew. Welcome along. Oh, hi, Neil. How are you? Very well, Andrew. What are your thoughts? I just uh, wanted to uh, uh, ask a question in relation to um, whether we should actually act politically. Um, I noticed in Acts 4, when the, when the disciples um, had problems and were persecuted, they went back and sought the Lord to ask, and they asked for an increase of faith. I think it wasn't, you know, boldness to, to preach the gospel. They didn't actually rise up and seek political power or, you know, removal of heads of state or whatever it was. Um, your comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, comment from you, Jonathan. On, uh, I think you're referring to Peter and John. After they were arrested, they went back in the prayer meeting there and they prayed for more boldness. They didn't say, mm-hmm. uh, let's have a prayer for overthrowing the state. Uh, thoughts here? And that's a fantastic uh, point to raise. And I, I, I mean, it goes much further than that because we can bring in here the tradition of martyrdom in the early church. And my, my mind is drawn to that astonishing um, account of Polycarp's martyrdom that I I return to every couple of years because I just find it the most inspiring and moving testimony of faith. And so that, that seems completely at odds on, on the surface of it to the kind of um, picture I'm painting. I would make a, a couple of observations. One, we, we do need to be mindful of context here. So... One of the challenges is that Christianity has been around for 2,000 years and that Great Commission, Neil, that you mentioned earlier has actually been not completely fulfilled but fulfilled in quite an extraordinary way if you think about the fact that the gospel has spread to every corner of the earth and whilst those of us living in the West feel not without (laughs) merit, without warrant, that we are sort of a besieged minority. The Jonathan, actually let, let me just in jump Africa in here for a moment. Yeah. Uh, we're about to go to news, so we might have to hold a thought or okay. two. Jonathan Cole, as we come back to where this conversation left off just before the news, Andrew, one of our listeners, called in, and he was concerned that the Peter and John story out of Acts chapter 4, uh, where Peter and John had been hauled before the Sanhedrin, and they'd been told not to preach the gospel. Well, when they were released, they went back and knocked on the door, and there they were in a prayer meeting where they prayed for boldness to continue to do what they were doing. They didn't pray for the overthrow of the state. They prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. I wonder if you've got a... Just to, just to, uh, to top this off, where we started to answer uh, Andrew's question before the news, uh, any thoughts as we complete that, uh, that answer? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Neil. I think this is a really good example of where context matters. So let's just think quickly about the context here. The the disciples live in a political situation that is not democratic, where they have 
Um, no ability to be to wield power, to be involved in power. The only alternative to changing it would be some kind of revolutionary activity, which is totally ruled out by Jesus. You might recall when the crowd tried to make him a king, he withdrew to the um, to the mountain and he told Pilate that, look, you know, if I really wanted to exercise my power, there'd be some kind of conflict. So the the disciples, the, the political context is important, but then we've also got to think about the context of who the disciples were, and particularly in this passage, what we're talking about. They're talking about teaching in a context where there is hostility from the religious, the Jewish religious authorities of the day, and they're praying for boldness so that they, they presumably can face and stare that hostility and preach the gospel no matter what the personal consequences are for them. And so we must remember that the disciples, A, are not political philosophers, they're not political leaders, they're not trying to establish a political party. They are spreading the good news of the gospel. That was the Great Commission after all. It wasn't start a Republican Party or a Democratic Party and institute uh, you know, communism or fascism or democracy. And so I think we need to be cautious when we, in what lesson we take from that context-dependent situation because we are not living in the Roman Empire and you and I, Neil, are not disciples um, of the Lord. That was a special vocation that, in my view, certain historical people were anointed directly from Jesus. We definitely have an obligation to share our faith, to be witnesses. Some of us are given the gift of evangelization, but we live in a democracy in Australia with certain freedoms and that gives us as Christians certain opportunities that were not open to the disciples or indeed any of the Christians in the first couple of centuries before the Constantinian Revolution. And so you have to ask yourself, what does God want us to do in this particular context when we have the opportunity to do things like fight for religious freedom? And to my earlier point, Neil, I'm suggesting that some of these political issues, when you think about them, are actually necessary in order to fulfill the gospel component because we don't want to get to a situation where we're not even free to to preach the gospel so and in in that situation maybe the only thing we can do is pray for boldness and stare martyrdom you know pray that we that we have the courage to face martyrdom but we are not at that position yet and so we why not use the opportunities god has blessed us with in australia in order to advocate to lobby to engage in political action in order to as you say, promote truth and righteousness in our nation. Jonathan, is it important to think of the gospel as a proclamation, but the effects of the gospel actually bring social change? Because the Roman state was all-powerful, wasn't it? And it was, in fact, uh, illegal at every turn for even the preaching of the gospel, in one sense there, in the Roman state. So, uh, but within three centuries, Christianity had become the state religion, surviving even the downfall of the Roman Empire. And Christianity, uh, in the ethics that come from Christianity, in fact, were a contrast uh, to the ethics of Rome. And so Christianity highlighted the cruelty of Rome, and therefore, of course, putting it at, at odds with Rome. So there is a certain sense in which you've got a clash of ethics here, and ethics are political too, aren't they? Absolutely. And this really is, is the crux of a lot of political theology, because we have such a complex uh, historical story of our faith and our 
church in that collective sense. As I said, it's now 2,000 years old, and that was the kind of point about the the wider point about the context is that the church has gone through every single kind of political circumstance you can you can think of. And if you just think of the fact that there is an underground church in a place like Iran, and then we also have places like America with what estimates of 80 to 100 million professing evangelicals in the nation. We have lots of different, and a lot of freedom, obviously. We have a lot of uh, different circumstances. I think the key thing we should understand about this uh, transformation of the Roman Empire in the situation is that really this was seen by a lot of Christians uh, at the time, those, the generation that lived through the transition where one moment Christianity has no legal secure footing and is subject to occasional and sometimes really brutal and severe persecution, not just by the state authorities, but there's a lot of prejudice in the sort of culture. And so you're at some threat from your neighbours, um, to this term where suddenly it becomes not only lawful to be a Christian, but it is declared the state religion. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is the actual intention of the Great Commission? If it is to make all nations and all people followers of Jesus, then there is, if that, if that commission is fulfilled, then Christianity is going to have a massive political impact, even if just by virtue of the, the demographic impact of the changed, transformed individual lives who, as you say, are going to view certain moral questions radically different. And we see this transition happen in Rome. So we see both politicians becoming the ruling. I mean, this this change is brought about by a conversion of sorts. It's, it's controversial, but a conversion of sorts in an emperor who then naturally transforms the empire, but then from the ground up culturally People stop exposing children that they don't want. They change their attitude to slavery, to abortion. The whole just war doctrine of warfare emerges in those early centuries after the empire becomes officially Christian because suddenly it, uh, Christians start to question, well, when we engage in warfare, is it really appropriate to massacre and rape and pillage men and women and children? So you see at every level of that society you start to see transformation and this is why what i'm trying to suggest about a certain naivety if we think we can pursue the commission of just spreading the gospel notwithstanding what i said earlier and it is an important point that we should never conflate our salvation with some kind of political program or objective that is actually secular thinking that that is what communism and fascism is it's a kind of um, sacralization of politics where the salvation of the nation or the working class can only be enacted in material ways here and now. That's not what we, we are talking about. But if we fulfill this commission, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have massive ramifications in the political sphere because you can't separate, <laughs> you know, even if every single person in, in say, China becomes a, a Christian, it naturally um, raises all kinds of political questions because there's still a nation to run. There's still an economy that you have to do. You still have to pass laws. And if everyone becomes a Christian, they're going to just start thinking. It's not that they no longer have to think about these political questions. It's just that the way they think about them is going to be informed by the gospel and scripture and the life of the church. I wonder if it is the thing that is the foundation for fears of uh, Christians applying their theology to political life that, uh, and the critics will say this is the case, that somehow or other Christians who become in, involved in politics are working towards a theocracy, as you say. That's like a secular way of thinking about 
who wields the power. And uh, if it's just the Christians who are wielding the power, uh, that may actually, and I think history might show that it hasn't worked so well throughout history at different times. But the thought that there would be a theocracy at the end of Christians becoming involved in politics, that's one thing that some people are afraid of, Jonathan. Yeah, that's certainly true, Neil. Let me say this. I think there's a tension both for Christians and for those who, as you say, are anxious or concerned that there's some either secret theocratic agenda of the at least the conservative Christians in our public political life elected representatives or that it inevitably leads down that path. I think the tension on the side of the critics is that on the one hand, they're proponents of democracy and on the other hand, they would prefer to see Christians in particular vacate the public square entirely. These are completely contradictory ideas because in a democracy, everyone has the right to run for elected office, to contribute to political debate, to organize, to give money to various causes. And so on the one hand, there's a, I hear a very, a completely incoherent contradictory message, which is we love the equality and we want to see we want to raise participation in politics we want everyone involved except for christians well if there's an exception for christians then you are undermining the very democratic principles that you pretend to profess now the tension for christians it really revolves around this key point i keep coming back to that there's no salvation in in politics look lord acton is responsible for that that famous um, line that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely absolutely now christians more so than any other members of our population are very conscious that we are all living in a fallen creation and we all have the capacity for sin inside of us and so if i could just i don't want to sound like a broken record but one area where i think christians who do go down the political path or the political engagement path can tend to be a bit naive is to think, well, I'm a morally upright person. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to come in and show these corrupt officials how it's really done. No, Christians need to be humble because there are many, many temptations that come with political power. It is a terrifying responsibility. The mere fact you're a Christian doesn't make you immune. You have to really double down in terms of your prayer life, uh, your reading of scripture and and your sort of moral fortitude because there are far more temptations in politics than, say, just working in many other areas of life. And so I can understand why for some Christians they are rightly concerned that if large numbers of Christians get involved in politics, there is a risk that it corrupts actually the gospel and the focus. But it goes back to my my earlier point that if you do believe in the Great Commission – then you kind of, this is my argument, you you have to care about politics because the very ability to preach the gospel depends on a certain set of political circumstances which increasingly are uh, under some kind of threat in this country. Good stuff. Hey, Jonathan, your book's t- entitled Christian Political Theology in an Age of Discontent. Uh, let me come to uh, that discontent and talk about that for a few moments because it seems to be that as discontent rises, and I'm talking about in the Christian community, then the aspects of political th- theology then are on the rise because we say we can't bear this discontent. We have to speak up and say something. What are your thoughts about discontent? And it's in the title of your book. Yeah, look, the, the discontent, as far as I'm 
concerned is just a factual statement about the state of affairs and the deep sense of anxiety and fear that permeates uh, every corner of the Christian community in Australia, in my experience. Well, I say every corner of the Christian community. It, there's a bit of a distinction here because if you are in amongst the more progressive-minded, uh, liberal, theologically liberal circles of the church, then you don't feel under threat because your values are pretty much indistinguishable from secular society. And secular society is quite willing to embrace people that affirm their their ideas. Look, I let me make this comment about something that I think is very unique about our context here in Australia, and it's, it's quite unprecedented. And that and, and this explains in part the discontent, but also why it's so challenging to work out how to approach politics as a Christian in 2022 in Australia. And that is Christians now, church-going Christians, Bible-believing Christians are an absolute minority in this country. I mean, there's only a couple of million, about as far as we can tell, a couple of million uh, Christians that attend a church service regularly in Australia now. And as you foreshadowed in the intro and as we've we've discussed a couple of times, there's been a big shift in the general cultural attitude, which has gone from sort of notionally Christian sort of 50, 70 years ago to what I would describe as benignly disinterested. Yeah, Christians are a bit weird, but they're okay. To now a growing hostility that sees Christianity not just as benign or harmlessly wacky, but as threatening, harmful, an obstacle to pro to progress, something to be pushed out of, op- optimally pushed out of public life, or even better, we- there are certain forces that would like to see just disappear and become extinct altogether. So this is actually quite a new situation, because Australia, if you go back far enough, and you don't have to go back too far, was a Christian nation in the sense that the overwhelming majority of people, I think in the census they did in the 20s, it was like well over 90% of Australians identified as Christian. And now not all of them may have been sort of convicted, church-going, morally upstanding. But that's quite a different cultural circumstance and context where at least everyone, you know, the the fact that Christianity has an important role to play in the life and culture and ideals of the nation was kind of uncontroversial if you go back that far. So the point I'm making is that Today, Christians are in a more hostile cultural environment, and they're now a minority, which means they have limited resources and they have a, a small group of support. And so that actually is very a very challenging situation, and it's new. This, this is only new now. You only have to go back 30 years, and it was quite a different state of affairs. And so it's hard and... And when I say it's hard, there's disagreement, even amongst the more conservative-minded Christians. Do we need to form lobbies? Do we need to form political parties? Is the solution to come into power? Is it actually to focus on evangelization so that we can actually (laughs) address the demographic decline of the faith? Do we focus on just a couple of discrete issues? Do we focus on every element of Christian truth in the public square? These are really difficult questions to to answer and there's a bit of discord which feeds into the discontent a kind of pessimism a, a siege mentality uh but that are, those are the that is the context in which we find ourselves unfortunately jonathan in an age of discontent all of a sudden we become interested in reform because we recognize what was and we'd like to see a return to those sorts of values that increase that flourishing when we are content, 
we're not so likely to recognise the value of reform. I'm interested in your thoughts here, and and this word reform is important because Christians, when we think of reform, we think of uh, reform of our religious status, and we might think back 500 years to the time of the Reformation. But reform isn't just within the church. There's reform in our uh, in our wider community, our wider civilization. Any thoughts here on on how reform might be one of those things that inspires us to get involved with a godly way of applying those sorts of ethics that we can glean from the scriptures? Sure, I'd I'd actually like to begin by going back to the Bible again because uh, and one of the verses I'm going to be discussing in my contribution to the church and state summit is one of my personal favorite verses that i would describe as a political theology verse and that is jeremiah 29 7 which i'll have to paraphrase because unfortunately i haven't committed the whole bible to absolute memory yet but it's something along the lines of seek the this is sort of uh this is the context of the exile of the uh, israelites in babylon that martin Niles was talking about um earlier that uh, God is instructing these exiled Israelites to seek the welfare of the city, namely Babylon, where they have been sent into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare, Israel will find its welfare too. And so I think Christians always need to remember, and again, I'm stepping back from the sort of paradigm I've created myself about the hostile culture and the, the minority under siege fighting for its rights and the like, There's a profound truth and wisdom in this passage because it reminds us that whatever the situation for Christians in a particular political cultural context, our welfare is actually tied up in the welfare of everyone. That includes the non-Christians. And again, what is what is the sort of uh, what are the key commandments (laughs) in Christian teaching? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. This adds in a whole another dimension to political theology what does it mean to love your neighbor what does it mean to seek the welfare of the city where we live even if it is one that is hostile well if we care about our society we should be interested in reform because there are some injustices there are some inequities there are some issues that don't relate to those those big sort of defensive christian issues i'm talking about and just let me name one um you know Australia has, unfortunately, an awful legacy of poor relations with Indigenous Australia. Settlement had a big impact on it. And so, you know, what can Christians do to help our Indigenous brothers and sisters and our fellow citizens of this nation, given, given there is some... Well, not some, but a lot of disadvantage. Now, that doesn't have to be a political question. We can have our views about, you know, constitutional recognition and all that. And I tend to be quite conservative on a lot of these uh, issues. But if we're going to fulfill, if we're going to seek the welfare of the community where we live, that's not just our own personal welfare. Because the whole whole teaching and point of that verse, and you find this actually, incidentally in Augustine's City of God, the whole two cities motif. He actually cites Jeremiah 29, 7, is that our welfare is inextricably linked to the welfare of everyone. So we can't prosper and thrive in a society where there are people dying on the streets from, from starvation or one particular race is being abused. So this is quite challenging because how do we manage that in this context where there are 
if you like, sectional interests that Christians have to care about because it's becoming the space for churches, like like Christian schools, for example, not churches, but even just the whole debate around the religious discrimination bill. There's a fight going on now for Christian schools to be able to preserve the integrity of the very purpose for which they have been established. That's a really important fight. But, of course, there are far more um, social, cultural, and political issues at play that don't directly affect uh, Christians in quite the same manner. And this is why it's very challenging, because we have to create the space so that we can preach the gospel and, and actually be able to be free to live out our faith. But we also have to love our neighbor. We also have to seek the welfare of the city where we have been sent into exile, if we want to follow that analogy. Well, Jonathan, time has run out, but I know listeners will be very impressed that you can take things below the surface and you can have a deeper dive into these sorts of issues and uh, great thoughts today and I know that you'll be echoing some of these sorts of things when you're addressing the Church and State Summit this coming Saturday. Uh, For listeners wondering about that, the Church and State Summit is being held this year in the town of Bow Desert which is just to the south of Brisbane and as I understand it there is still room for registering for that summit or to get access access to the live stream so wherever you're at uh, all over Australia you'll be able to access the live stream for that and I'll point people to churchandstate.com.au churchandstate.com.au Jonathan Cole is the author of a book it's called Christian Political Theology in an Age of Discontent and uh, Jonathan no doubt listeners will be able to get that wherever they uh, find books uh, online sellers but also from your website jonathancole.com.au that's jonathancole.com.au and I just want to mention once more the Political Animals podcast Uh, Jonathan your thoughts here because I imagine your podcast is probably on all of the major podcast platforms Yes, it is. Spotify, Apple and the lesser known ones too. Keep an eye out for the Political Animals podcast. And uh, Dr. Jonathan Cole, thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. It's been great and a real pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.